there are a lot of paradoxical things about me, not that I'm going to share all those with you now, but one of them is the tension that I have between a couple of uh, character traits that seem to be in opposition. See, on the one hand, many who know me would say that I'm persistent, long-suffering, tolerant, and even tenacious. Those are traits that kind of work with the notion of waiting. In fact, years ago, I gave myself the nickname. So I, I nicknamed myself because I never had a nickname that worked when I was a kid. Um, they tried Denny. No, I'm not a Denny. I'm Dennis. Um, when I played football and I wrestled, the guys tried to come up with nicknames. They just never stuck. But I gave myself a nickname. Um, just in the family, I called myself Tenacious D. <laughs> and then I found out that the comic actor Jack Black created a rock band called Tenacious D. And I'm like, oh, man, he took my, took my nickname. And just last week, I was in Colorado to minister at Arvada Covenant Church near Denver. It's a beautiful time, beautiful uh, state. And I met with my friend Paul Lassard, who is our executive minister of Start and Strengthen Churches in one of our uh, covenant offices. And Paul was talking, and he described me as tenacious, and I started laughing. I said, you know, I gave myself that nickname, tenacious. <laughs> anyway, we were laughing in the car going up into the mountains. I can be tenacious. I keep trying and trying, and I refuse to give up on something. I like to wait it out and keep going. But on the other hand, <clears throat> there's something else that I know about myself, and my wife Susan would acknowledge. I can be impatient. My impatience shows up when I'm feeling overwhelmed, especially overwhelmed with responsibility. For example, for years I was the primary driver in the family, and there were many times I had to get all six of us someplace safely. This is before Google Maps, even before MapQuest. I won't whine about those olden days, but I know that I can be an impatient driver at times, wishing people would stop dilly-dallying, taking forever at a four-way stop, sleeping or on the phone when they should be turning at that left arrow because we only got a few seconds to make it through that arrow, or camping out in the left lane when you know that left lane is a passing lane, but you decided to just stay there and take your time, Minnesotans. I, uh, I lived for six years in Minnesota. It was driving me nuts. I also know that I can be impatient over how some people do meetings, because when meetings drag on and on, I get impatient. I keep looking at the facilitator, can you make this thing go, please? And after a meeting takes place and everyone seems to know what they're supposed to do, then later at a subsequent meeting, there's that one person who needs to go over everything we talked about at that first meeting, as if that one didn't take place. It drives me a little crazy and I can get impatient in those meetings. Because of my paradoxical nature, there's this fear that's haunted me for much of my adult life. The fear is that I might have missed out on God's best because I was impatient. Even though I was a tenacious church planter in Brooklyn, New York, pastor of a predominantly white church on Capitol Hill in D.C., and then planting a church again in Washington, D.C., then finally an evangelical covenant pastor in Minnesota, I think about all the times I was overwhelmed and grew impatient. I had a fear that I would be like Moses and Aaron in this passage before us, which is to say that I feared missing out on God's best for me and the ministry I was engaged in. I feared uh, missing out on the promised land. 
My consolation, however, is that I'm still doing ministry and still learning from my mistakes. I'm learning that ministry is about being and not just doing. I'll say that again. Ministry is about being and not just doing. What I mean is that we humans tend to think that God only cares about certain results, but God also cares about you. God is not impressed with people who can gather big crowds, build a huge building, raise lots of money while being self-centered, arrogant, power-hungry megalomaniac. Now our nation continually demonstrates that we don't always care about the quality of a person's life as long as they get certain results. But God is concerned about who we are and who we are becoming. God isn't as concerned about the monuments you build as much as God is concerned about the character you're building. So I believe the incident here in Numbers 20 is about having the right character even as we wait in uncomfortable situations. I mean, it is a difficult text. It's one of those things that if I were telling the story, I wouldn't want people to hear this part of it because it doesn't make anybody in the story look particularly good. The right character, though, that I'm talking about includes faithfulness to God even in the difficult time of waiting. Impatience is part of the passage, and that impatience causes misdirected anger, and misdirected anger leads to greater problems. So I'm going to read here Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zen, and they stayed at Kedesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates. And there's no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him, He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. The Lord blesses the reading of his word. This is the word of the Lord. One of the first things I want to reinforce from this passage is that impatience can lead to misdirected anger. The people of Israel are once again at a frightening moment in their history as they travel through the desert on the way to the promised land. I have a map, I think. So not that you need to, nobody's gonna quiz you, but you can see the Sinai Peninsula and 
there's a little bit of the travels of the people of Israel in the desert of Zen, the wilderness of Zen, up, upper right there. A more modern picture next of the desert. But listen to how the people complain, or, or did you catch it when I read it? The people, they're lamenting. They're lamenting losses. I mean, they just lost Miriam, the hero who saved baby Moses and led the people alongside her brothers, Aaron and Moses. The people weren't able to farm grain. They lost the figs, grapes, and pomegranates that they had in Egypt. And right now, they appear to have lost water. I mean, they are, they are thirsty. They're facing a very real crisis. But instead of directing their anger on their enslavers or enslavement, enslavement itself and turning to God, they take out their anger on God's representative, Moses. Now, honestly, I don't believe that anger in and of itself is wrong, but the people's anger is misdirected. And it's not uncommon for people who are hurt, who have experienced tremendous loss, and who are frustrated with life circumstances to get angry at God's spokesperson. In a sense, they're projecting because they are also angry at God. Yet it's easier to take that anger out on someone we can see. Talk to pastors and leaders, and you'll find it to be a common reality that we become the objects of people's anger when they experience pain and loss. Interestingly, I believe Moses also misdirected his anger, but I'll come to that in a few minutes. Right now, I want to encourage us as people of faith to not be in denial about our feelings surrounding loss. We can be angry. We can be frustrated. We can be all sorts of things. But as we have learned over time, we cannot be hasty in our anger. The anger should be channeled into creative solutions. We ought not to be impatient and create more problems by blaming the wrong source of our anger. It's like over in the New Testament when Paul says to the Ephesians, you know, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And he, and he, and he, wants, he doesn't want you to give then the devil a foothold. So, so you can get angry. But think about what does it mean to um, direct that anger in the right direction so that we come up with creative solutions instead of misdirecting it and aiming at people. That's simply too easy a solution. While impatience can lead to misdirected anger, my second point is that misdirected anger leads to hasty conclusions. Again, I draw your attention to those first few verses, two to five, because the people said they they'd have been better off dead in the desert. I mean, really? They ask, why did you bring us out here? I mean, don't forget that God sent Moses because God had heard the cries of his people for hundreds of years. They know why God sent Moses. They know why they're out in the desert. The people knew why God had sent Moses to get them out of Egypt. But in their anger, they concluded they'd be better off dead or back in slavery. You probably have learned that the great Moses for enslaved Africans in the U.S., Harriet Tubman, carried a gun on her rescue missions along the Underground Railroad. And while the gun was mostly for protection from slave catchers, she also used it to encourage weak-hearted runaways from turning back and risking the safety of the rest of the group. There were people who, were, who would go back. Harriet Tubman's experience coincides with what's happening in our text because fear and anger often go together. People get angry because they're afraid. 
And Harriet Tubman couldn't risk fearful runaways turning back. And at this moment in our text, the people of Israel needed to learn not to fear the desert or anything else, God, because God had promised them a home of their own. Fear is underneath the anger. Now, all you folks who do the, who know psychotherapy and know stuff better than I know would say to me, anger is a secondary emotion, that there's something else that's driving that anger. And I think fear is one of those things that drives that anger. For me, I've wrestled with anger much of my life, even though I think I project a rather calm, stable presence. That's because I'm old and I'm a grandfather, and it's best to be calm and stable. (laughs) I mean, I have a lot of anger that I've dealt with over time or continue to deal with. I mean, is anger related to being African-American in a society that's hostile to my people? There's anger over the deaths of family members. I mean, my mother died at a young, relatively young age. I had a brother who was shot down in the street in the Bronx. I mean, I have anger over various hurts that I don't need to discuss at this moment. But I keep needing to be reminded to practice patience, waiting on God and not directing my anger toward individuals. And for me, I need to remember that people often act the way they do because they're in pain and have never been taught the way of love. I need to be angry at systems that dehumanize, at a culture that rewards arrogance, at a society that doesn't teach us how to embrace pain and disappointment. That's where I direct my anger. Because I can be impatient. So I try to practice slowness in a deliberate way. I mean, that slowness frustrates some people because they want to move faster. This has been true in my pastoral experience. They want things to happen fast. There's a book that I really like called Slow Church. And when that book came out, I said, ding, 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 ding. I get this. They get me. They get us. Just kidding. Oh, so, <laughs> oh, y'all didn't get that. Sorry. Or maybe it wasn't funny. Never mind. <laughs> but that slowness can frustrate people who think we have to do everything fast, even if it um, takes a toll. Being slow and deliberate helps me to not act out of my impatience and misdirect my anger. There's a third thing that this text demonstrates, at least for me, and it's that misdirected anger denies God's power and presence. So in our story, God saw that the people of Israel were tired, agitated, and desperate for water. So God tells Moses to go get your staff and go and command the rock to bring out water in front of everybody's eyes. So Moses got his staff just like he was commanded. In fact, the text says that, just as he was commanded. And his brother, he got his brother Aaron too. But instead of speaking to the rock, he spoke to the people. Moses unleashed his anger on the people. I mean, you see that. He said, listen, you rebels. And that's what Moses says before he strikes the rock. Now, scholars have tried to figure out exactly what Moses did wrong that God would not allow him to go into the promised land. Some say it was wrong that he did hit that rock. But it's exactly what God instructed him to do in a similar episode that's recorded back in Exodus. It's over in Exodus chapter 17. They're in a similar space. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put your Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Now, what verses did I have up there? Oh, no, I thought I had an Exodus passage. 
Well, that's all right. Moses, so the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah, which means testing, quarreling, because the Israelites quarreled because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? So notice, he did hit the rock back then, and the Lord tells him to get the staff right here, but he, he's instructed here to speak to the rock. So some folks say, oh, that's the problem. He hit the rock, he didn't speak to it. So that could be. Let's look over at another passage because it's also Old Testament re, um, reflection on the past, and that would be in the book of Psalms. So if you look over at Psalms 106 and verse 32, I think I have up there, right, 32 and 33, there's a reflection on this experience from the psalmist. The psalmists say, by the waters of Meribah, they angered the Lord, and trouble came to Moses because of them, for they rebelled against the Spirit of God, and rash words came from Moses' lips. So the psalmist seems to be focusing on what Moses says. Moses put his attention on the people. So if you read Exodus and then Numbers, <clears throat> you can you can see in earlier situations how Moses, his pattern had been to intercede on behalf of these people, even when they were um, feeling uh, the constraints of their desert situation, and God was ready to be harsh with them. I mean, there's one more example I'll give you. It's also in the book of Numbers, just a few chapters earlier. It's in chapter 14, that when they are there in the desert, and uh, they sent out the spies to go check out the land of Canaan, and when they came back, only two had a good report, right? And 10 were afraid. The people said, oh, we can't do this. And God was so frustrated with them that he was ready to, like, get rid of them. And Moses is the one who interceded in chapter 17, uh, uh, verse 17 of chapter 14. Uh, now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. And it goes on to say the Lord will forgive, but some folks are going to die out in the desert. What I'm trying to get you to see in these quick glimpses from Exodus and Psalms and Numbers is the kind of leader that Moses had become. He had learned to shepherd people who could be ungrateful, stubborn, fearful, faithless, and impatient. And here in this episode, back to chapter 20, in the desert of Zen, Moses has to deal with frightened, impatient, and angry people yet again. And it is really hard to know exactly what Moses did wrong, but God says that Moses failed to trust God. Moses failed to honor God as holy in front of the people. Rather than Moses affirming God's holiness in the presence of the people, he angrily turns back on the people. Perhaps there's a lesson at least there for us who lead people, because I have certainly experienced angry people who turn their negative energy onto me for a variety of reasons. In those times, I have felt myself wanting to be harsh toward them, and maybe I was, even if I didn't understand that I was. But by God's grace, I'm learning that through the years, I don't need to respond to everyone's display of anger toward me. 
I don't need to act like the New Yorker that is inside. If you knew the Edwards family, at least the family I came out of, you know that I was conditioned to cuss you out and, curse you and cut you off. This would be the Edwards way. One of our favorite expressions was, later for you. We'd be done. We could cut you off for life. And I say that, you know, kind of smiling and joking because of what God has done in my life. But there's a whole lot of flood of memories inside my head right now that if you could see what's inside my head, you'd be like, because oh. <laughs> I got stories. <laughs> yeah. I've been learning, however, that people can misdirect their anger. They can aim it at me, but I don't need to respond in the same way. This doesn't mean that I have to be a victim of abuse. I mean, after all, I don't have to stick my hand back into the fire, but neither ought I dishonor God by blasting people with my vitriol. I mean, these verses remind me that I need to go to God in prayer on behalf of the people in the situation. I might feel lonely and alienated, but the reality is that it's not always about me. People are dealing with all sorts of things. I need to affirm that God is in charge. God's holy. God's righteous. God can do more than I think God can do. God can handle my anger, my frustration, my disappointment, my inability to solve a problem at a pace that would satisfy other people. God can also handle the anger, frustration, and disappointments of other people without having me to twist myself up in knots trying to calm them down. I have learned, even though I am slow at times, deliberately so, but I'm, learn <laughs> but I'm also slow to learn some things, <laughs> I, but I'm learning to ask God for exactly what I need in those times of frustration. Because I do tie myself up in knots, trying not to be like the way Dennis could be, and then trying to satisfy people's needs in a way I think they should be satisfied. And how about you? I mean, have you dealt with people who direct their anger toward you? I mean, okay, sometimes it's little children, and they vent their anger, and we understand because, well, they're little children. They don't know better. But maybe that's true with adults also. Maybe those angry adults just don't know any better. Not all of us know how to deal with our impatience, which leads to anger, which leads to lashing out, which can cause all manner of destruction. Now, I started out this message by saying I sometimes fear that I missed out on God's best in ministry context because of my impatience. I hope not, but there are certainly have been times where I've been impatient and angry at myself or even with others. So the, the fear that I have is actually born out of this story because Moses will miss out on entering the promised land because of this episode. Now, I will say though, I'm gonna jump ahead in time a little bit, not for real, just in the time of the story. And, um, and if you look at the end of Deuteronomy, y'all look at me so serious sometimes. I'm like, okay, I guess y'all really don't know me. Or, or you say, all oh, those dad jokes, we get it, Dennis, we get it. Um, but if you jump ahead to the end of the Pentateuch at De Deuteronomy where Moses is dying, he, um, it actually is a beautiful story. We had at one midwinter, we had um, Ruth Haley Barton speaking to us there from that passage. And it sticks with me a lot because I was, I was in an emotional place at that time. So um, she talked about that. And it, all my life, I tell you, I've been haunted by Moses not being able to get into the promised land. And she... And she um, gave this wonderful talk about, here's Moses as an old man, and what's on the horizon, if we know it, it's war. 
I mean, Joshua is going to lead some battles. Old man Moses doesn't need to be leading a battle. And Moses gets to rest with God. And the beautiful thing is he dies there and nobody knew where he was buried. It's like God just buried him and took care of Moses at the end. So she gave me a little comfort because I have left churches to go serve at a different ministry and I felt like God had moved me to another place. And sometimes a friend of mine would come in and speak at my farewell uh, service to go. And, and they almost always would talk about Moses not getting it. I was like, what's the deal? I'm like, I'm just like 40 years old. And I'm like, Moses? And like all of a sudden, it's like, well, Moses is dead. Joshua's coming. I'm like, what? It's like, I'm still here. But there was this sense that, well, his time's up. Time, you know, for the next phase. And that's a true statement. My time was up, time, next phase. But every time getting compared to Moses was, getting, was starting to wear on me because I already had this fear that I was maybe stopping early or, or my anger had turned into something or my frustration had been there. And, I, and as I worked that out, you know, in therapy and other places, I realized it's not all that was going on because I had also told God early in my life, because I love the Lord, I said, I'm willing to be like another old person, Abraham. I said, I'll go wherever you tell me to go, Lord. And I said, I want to stay in New York. It's my home, but I'll go wherever you want me to go. And that was, year, that was almost 40 years ago. And, um, and the Lord has moved me around, and I have felt as tenacious as I am. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to make this thing work. I'm going to do my part. I'm going to help this ministry as best I can. And then this real, realization hits me sometimes really hard and emotionally, like the Lord says, all right, I got something else for you to do. And I will drag my feet at times and say, Lord, really? Yeah, Dennis, it's time. So I, I balance that fear of, of my impatience with the, with the reality that God keeps moving me to do the things that God calls me to do, and I want to be responsive. But my last point relates to what happens to Moses, at least in this episode, is that his misdirected anger means he will miss out on seeing or getting into the promised land. He gets to see it. Right? I mean, right before he dies, he gets to see it. We have that beautiful line in the song, Sweet Hour of Prayer. It's an old-time hymn. But it says, from Mount Pisgah's lofty heights, I view my home and take my flight. So he gets to see, but he doesn't go in. God tells Moses and Aaron that they will not enter the land because they did not affirm God's holiness before the people. And perhaps the one thing we leaders are constantly being asked to do is affirm who God is in front of people. Whether it's a funeral, a wedding, a baptism, a baby dedication, or a routine Sunday experience, we have the privilege and responsibility to affirm who God is and what God does. And perhaps that's why I personally get frustrated inside if I hear a message that seems more like self-help and pop psychology and not a solid tre treatment of Scripture because I, I, want, I want God to be affirmed here. I don't want Sunday events to be all about navel-gazing or appealing to human frailty. It has to also be about affirming who God is. Worship means ascribing worth to God. It's not just singing. Worship is about celebrating the holiness and even the otherness of God. And I don't want to miss out on God's blessing because I fail to honor God as holy in front of people, even angry, impatient people. Amen. 
So sometimes I think the church in the USA has been missing out on the blessings of God because we've let our impatience turn to misdirected anger, which causes division and hatred. For some Christians who wanted to win culture wars, their impatience led to supporting oppressive policies and despicable people. And some Christians eager to win the justice wars can be impatient, snarky, self-righteous, and also guilty of misdirecting their anger. And some Christians pursue personal contentment. They try to avoid dealing with any of that stuff. They don't want to talk about racial injustice, economic injustice, climate change, or any other issue. They get angry with the people who bring that up because it's uncomfortable for them. They say, well, that's not central to the good news that we call gospel. All that misdirected anger leads to fractured relationships and a failure to affirm the holiness of God in the presence of the people. And don't miss this. God provided the water. I mean, after all of that, water came gushing out the rock. Even in the midst of the people's impatience and anger, God quenched their thirst. What a mighty and loving God we serve. He let the water flow while the people were being taught a powerful lesson. Sisters and brothers, just because God is quenching our thirst day after day, week after week, it doesn't mean that we have nothing to learn about waiting. One lesson we need to learn is that impatience can be perilous. Impatience can lead to misdirected anger. So, so how can we learn patience? For me, I've been learning to say to myself that I'm not responsible for other people's feelings. I'm not responsible for solving all the problems of the world or even other people's problems. I'm not called to be selfish. I don't mean that. But I'm called to be mindful of who I am, what I can do, and how I should be. I've learned that the more I stay in touch with who God wants Dennis to be, the better I am at waiting. There was an old song that had a line that said, teach me, Lord, how to wait. Well, I think we could sing or pray or preach, teach me, Lord, how to be my best self, because that's really the goal. I mean, I can't make myself grow taller. I can't grow back a full black afro like I used to have. I can't force myself to be something. I become who I am supposed to be by opening myself up to the Holy Spirit of God. I learn patience by trusting God with my life. See, the opposite of impatience is not merely waiting. It's trusting. We can wait when we believe. Your kids learn how to wait for those of you who have kids because they trust you. When you tell them we'll do such and such, they can hang on a little longer because they trust you. The question is, can you hang on a little longer because you trust God? God wants you to be who you ought to be. Well, my sisters and brothers, it's always good to be here with you. I get to say something I don't always get to say, but I love you. I believe that waiting is not wasting. Waiting is growing. And while we wait, we practice the presence of the Lord. One of the ways we do that is through our communion time. You know, in some traditions, they call the person who gets to do what I'm about to do, they call that person the celebrant. We are celebrating something. Yet every, every um, communion service I'm part of is pretty solemn. So I think we're celebrating, but we all seem so sad. I want us to celebrate 
the presence of God. It's a foreshadowing of the feast that we will have in glory with the Lord one day. So let's take a moment, and perhaps for some people it does mean confessing sin as we come to the table. But I also think it's a time for us to thank God for what God has done because God is making you to be the person and the people we ought to be, even though waiting can be agonizing. In that waiting, God is making us. Let's take a moment to talk to God, to confess, and also to thank God for what we are becoming.